This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. We are going to talk about fillers and toxins. How many out there actually do any kind of fillers or toxins or neuromodulators? Any, any hands up? Okay, so a lot of you do. So hopefully this will be really helpful to you. The idea, and, and here's the next question. How many of you have seen bad work walk into your office? I think more hands than I had the first time. So um, that is a common problem that I see in my practice. And so what we're going to talk about is the basic in information on fillers and toxins, and we usually call them neuromodulators with our patients because the word toxins is not very pleasant, uh, even though that's what they are. Um, but we will also talk about what not to do and the complications that can arise. And I explain to my patients and I explain to people when I'm teaching a lot that it's not the hundred cases that go right, it is the one case that goes wrong and knowing what to do in that situation. These are my disclosures in specific uh, reference to this talk today. Um, specifically on the fillers and toxins. So sometimes people will come in with a picture of what they want to look like. And that to me is usually the worst case scenario. I don't want someone walking in with a picture of someone else. Now I will have patients bring in pictures of themselves from 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's fine. Because in my opinion, when you're trying to create a look, let's see if this little pointer works here. And I don't see my little pointer working not working on this thing, so I'll just let the guys know. Anyway, um, if they come in with a picture of someone else and they want to look like them, it's, as you can see here, it's not necessarily a good thing. And then the second bad thing is someone that comes in and either the patient doesn't have a good vision of what they need or the doctor or the PA doesn't have a good vision of what they need and they turn out looking like this. And I don't think any of you here would agree that this is not a a poor job of fillers and toxins in this case, and probably some, some other things down as well. And we'll talk a little later about that. So we'll start off with fillers. Uh, there are many new indications for fillers. There are many new fillers on the market. How do you create a successful filler patient? I think number one, it's patient selection, picking the right patient. Number two, it's product selection, understanding what products are out there and what the right product is for the case or for the area that you're treating. And then a huge part of it is technique, how you inject those fillers, how slowly, how quickly, antegrade, retrograde, all those different factors. We do a lot of mid-face mid replacement. I think we are done with chasing lines. Years ago, and I've been doing this for over 20 years, years ago we would chase lines. We would try to fill a line. And I think we're realizing now that that is not the goal with fillers today. We're trying to basically do this volumetric replacement of what the patient has lost, creating this aesthetic balance. So really trying to create a symmetry, bringing out the natural beauty in every individual's face. Indications have changed. Um, we typically do things like the lips. Now we'll do more of a mid-face. So someone that comes in and complains of nasolabial folds, we will likely not just say, okay, I'm just gonna stick some filler in your nasolabial fold, but rather look at the overall reason that those nasolabial folds are present, which relates to the mid-face as well. Restructuring the jawline. Uh, dental issues are a big concern, and I explain, I discuss that with all of my patients because we do know that the bones resorb over time, and so kind of recreating a jawline for women and men is important. And then the lower lids. We are able to adjust the lower lids. There are certain things we can do and certain things we can't do, and there's a little fly there. Um, so looking again over at the overall aesthetic patient, and then also understanding we know now that 
Patients will come back years later and say, look, my filler's still there. Well, we know the filler's not still there, but we do seem to get what's called collagen stimulation. And some documentation, I'll discuss that with uh, papers have been published on that. And most importantly are the adverse events and how you handle them. So these are the talk, again, factors that affect the outcome of your fillers. Number one, the physical properties of your filler, both the chemical properties, the physical actual properties, the gel size, the particle size, the G prime, the viscosity, the patient's own anatomy. And I will tell you that the only real complication I ever came up with in my practice on my patient was someone that had had some work, a young person, and had not disclosed that to me. And so it's very important that you tell your patients they need to be honest with you what previous work have they had, because once some kind of surgical procedure has been done on someone, things have changed. The anatomy changes, the vessels change, and you really need to know what's going on. And then, of course, just the physiology and psychology of the patient, making sure that you have the right patient. And again, doing this for so long, if I feel that my patient is not understanding what I'm saying, is not really getting the whole gist of things, is unrealistic in their expectations, I do send patients away because I know I will never make them happy because they're really not happy to begin with and, and just doing some cosmetic surgery will not be the answer. And then it's the injector, that person themselves. The aesthetic eye, being able to look at something and see what it needs. Being able to understand what the good or appropriate injection technique is, the degree of correction. And that's something I explain to my patients. If you have someone that comes in and they're like, okay, that's it, I wanna be done in one session and ready to go and, and that's it, I think that is some misinformation to the patient because what happens is you put often too much filler in, they become too bloated, too swollen, they have lots of downtime with that and you really don't get a great result. So I do think staging the fillers is a much better way to go and um, again, that optimization interval as I mentioned on here. So these are just a few of the fillers in the United States in 2017 when they've been FDA approved. And then he's, these are the non-HA fillers, also again FDA approved in the US. Um, Artifil is now called Bellafil. But here's a list around the globe. So there are a lot of fillers out there, a lot more than we have in the United States. And so patients will come in sometimes from, from overseas and say they had X, Y, or Z placed in their face, and it is important before you treat that patient, go online, find out exactly what they had put in their face, what kind of particle it is, what kind of gel, whatever it is, what kind of product was put in their face, so you know what you're dealing with, especially if it's something like cement or silicone, because you can really get into trouble there. So when I'm deciding what filler to use on a patient, this is a very important chart. The idea is that in certain areas, we want more lift, we want something to bring things up, especially in the lower face. We kind of want to create that scaffold. When we're dealing with things, let's say like the lips, we want something much more soft and not something that's going to give a lot of lift. So we want something less firm. And you can see the, the um, products at the top, like Radius, which is calcium hydroxyapatite, is a much firmer, giving more lift, harder product. I tend to use that typically in areas because it's a bone derivative of bone. So the jawline, areas where there are where I'm going to basically be filling over bone. But when I get into things like the lips, I don't use anything but things in the Juvederm family because again, I want something softer, I don't want something hard, I don't want something that's going to be firm in the lip area. 
So when you go to inject a patient, the most important thing is to know your anatomy. That is absolutely mo the most important thing you're gonna learn today. Hopefully most of you that are doing fillers already know this, but when you go to inject, you have to know where you are and what vessels and what the um, items are in the area that you might be injecting into. Specifically, again, those arteries is the biggest thing. Um, injection technique, we again know now that it's usually, we treat in kind of zones or areas. Um, you can do anterograde and retrograde injections depending on where you're injecting. We do, again, that volume replacement, and I do a lot of bone replacement for people that have that asymmetry or resorption of the bone. And this is really important in that mid-face malar area when you're doing this. And then again, layering techniques. So I will not just put eight or 10 cc's of fillers in someone's face at one time, even though they may need eight to 10 cc's of fillers, it will not typically happen in one session. So what happens with the aging face? Okay, here's a nice example. I'm gonna to try to see my pointer works now. There we go, great. All right, so you can see the crow's feet appear. This is an area that most of my patients come in, and some people will say, I'm trying to decide between a facelift or not. Certainly someone like this could get a facelift because they would redrape the skin and pull the muscle back, but the majority of people that come to see me usually don't want a facelift. They don't want surgery. They want to say, what can I do to improve things without going under the knife, without the downtime of surgery? So if you look here, you've got these deep nasolabial folds, but these folds are actually created by the laxity of the skin. So if I fill that fold, am I going to make this patient happy? Everyone who thinks I I'll make the patient happy, raise your hand. Good. Okay, we're on the right track here. So clearly, that is not what we're going to do on this patient. You've got this jawline that has become irregular. You can see that it's not straight. You can see the marionette lines. Lip lines are a big complaint of patients because even when they get a facelift, what doesn't get better? The lip lines. And so we're going to talk about this. So this is a great slide. Kent Remington is one of my favorites. He's a wonderful lecturer. This is his slide and talking about, again, the sites for volumization. So we're treating the zones. We're not treating lines. So even if we treat this nasolabial fold here, we're also looking at that nasal jugal fold, and we're treating these as, as areas so that we can give back to the patient what they've lost over time, what has changed over time, what has descended over time, and restore and enhance the beauty of their face. This becomes the advanced injection technique. And how many of you are doing areas on the forehead or glabellar complex? Anyone here? Okay. So these are what we call danger zones. And I think, again, knowing your anatomy, if you are going to get into these areas, just be aware, and we'll talk about it, what to do if something goes wrong. But when you get into the forehead and treating glabellar lines, that's when you really you know, run a risk of getting into that supertrochlear artery and, and actually can cause blindness. So it's a, it's a very serious thing. But areas that you should think about when you're doing the face, earlobes are great because a lot of times patients will come in and their face looks great, but the earring is pulling all the way down to their chest and you can actually put a little filler in those earlobes and they do great. You can redefine the lips themselves and when you're doing lip lines, again, treating like the philtrum, putting a little filler at the base of the nose, there's so much more that you can do. Chin augmentation will help with the submental fat. So again, really looking at the face as a whole component. So here's an example of a patient, and this is before treatment, and you can see these are the areas that were treated, and this is 10 days after treatment. 
One of the reasons this is 10 days after treatment is because this is a patient who was pre-treated with bromelain, arnica, told to stay off aspirin, Advil, ibuprofen. So we always have a bruising tip sheet that we give our patients to reduce the risk of bruising. Because when you're putting a lot of fillers in someone's face, what are the chances you're going to have bruising? Pretty high. Okay? But if you pre-treat those patients, they tend to do really well. And again, just some examples. This is before treatment. This is six months after treatment when you're treating this mesolabial fold here. And you can see that two and a half cc's of filler were placed in there. But this is, again, six months out. What's nice is that we should have some even longer lasting results. This is the tear trough area. And then this is an area, again, a, a little bit of a danger zone. So you have to be very careful, know your anatomy when you're doing that. This is only 0.4 cc's, and this is one year later. So if you were to stick a whole cc of filler in there, you really could have a lot of swelling, a lot of Tyndall effect, which is that blue tinge, blue color that you can see when it's placed too high. This patient did not need a lot, but a little bit medial and a little bit on the lateral edge as well. This mid-face magic, again, we see that the fat pads change, they descend over time, we get a flattening of that cheek, um, which again leads to that accentuation of the nasolabial fold as well as the tear trough area. And we now have newer particle size hyaluronic acids that can be placed deep under the fat pad. And so knowing again, certain fillers are placed in the dermal tissue, some are placed deep, again, especially when you're doing this mid-face rejuvenation. And when you're doing tear trough area, that's when you want smaller particle size products so that you don't get that Tyndall effect. This is a patient, and this is a total of eight cc's, and this is six months after. And you can see, again, fixing that hollowing here. And you see by fixing that hollowing that all of this area looks better, treating also, again, that mesolabial fold. Volume and contouring, and this is that pregel sulcus. It's a common area that I treat. Uh, my patients come in and complain about that. Uh, sometimes they don't realize that the jawline is affected. Sometimes they do. Again, that's where I will use a larger particle size filler. I'll begin with that mesolabial fold and that pregel sulcus, inserting it, again, medial along that jawline and lifting and going all the way back to the auricula fossa. And here's an example, this is before treatment, and you can see how that angle is lost, and recreating it with four cc's, you can actually get that nice straight jawline, fixing also again that mesolabial fold as well. And here again, you can see how that jawline has changed, and doing just six weeks after, and this is 1.5 cc's on each side of product. So what happens with hyaluronic acid? We used to think that we place the hyaluronic acid, and then it absorbs, and then we're done. But now we know that we do get some form of stimulation of collagen through the hyaluronic acid. We don't know if it's just the receptors on the fibroblast, whether it's actually the direct stretching of the filler and the fibroblast um, due to that filler, and then versus whether it's a hyaluronic acid particle or a gel that stimulates more collagen. But we can, again, get that optimization where we do the interval filling. This was a study um, by Wang and uh, Kwan, and it was out of um, investigative dermatology back in 2013, and they did 70 patients, and they also, they, that's where they found that you actually got a stimulation of the fibroblasts, expansion of the vasculature, and an increased epidermal thickness, and it was not an inflammation or, in, or a foreign body reaction. This was actually an increase in collagen production, and, uh, and this basically showed that you could use hyaluronic acids and get these long-lasting results, not just due to the filler itself, but the stimulation of new collagen. So here's a patient. This is at baseline, at one year, 
and two years out after two sessions of treatment, and you can see basically two years later that patient looks better than when they started, and I think even a little bit better than they did after the first treatment session. Again, before and after treatment, just to show you, this is at two and a half years out after three treatment sessions, and you can see not only is that, that area filled in, but the texture of the skin looks better, everything looks better. So now we get to the stuff that is the scary part. And if you do fillers at all, you have to know this information. I think it really is critical to how things, how things will progress in your practice. Uh, we're gonna talk about common and rare side effects. Uh, immediate and trans transient ones, we're including the common things like bruising and swelling. So if a patient calls up the next day and says, I had bruising, I had swelling, those are not uncommon. What I do is, number one, to prevent a lot of questions, is my staff calls all of my filler patients the day after their treatment. I think it's a good way to go. You've called them, they know you're worried about them, they know you wanna check in with them, and oftentimes it does avoid them calling to say, I'm, I'm worried because I have some bruising or swelling. Immediate persistent uh, errors, this basically is usually a procedure error where you get the overcorrection or you've placed it in the wrong area or again, that vascular compromise. And finally, there's delayed adverse events and the, or long-term, and those include things like host-product interaction, which is very rare now, hypersensitivity, and of course, biofilms. So this picture, implant it in your mind, because this is the picture you need to know, okay? And specifically, if you hit a vein, you're probably just gonna get some bruising, but if you hit that serpatrochlear artery, again, if you're doing that glabellar complex, you can have big problems. If you hit that angular dorsal vessel, you can have big problems. If you hit that labial artery, you can have big problems. So you really want to make sure that you've gone over the anatomy, that you have a picture of that with you so you know where you're treating. And again, if someone's had surgery or a facelift or rhinoplasty, all bets can be off. So you really do need to know what you're getting into. How do we avoid filler complications? That's the best thing we can do. If we can avoid them, it's a much better way to go. So number one is we prepare our patients. If someone, as I mentioned earlier, comes in with unrealistic expectations, frequently we will just send them away. We will not treat that patient. Always start with dissolvable fillers. If you are new to filling, if you are concerned, if you are at all nervous, absorbable, dissolvable fillers is the way you want to go. Do not go with something that's permanent. Do not go with something that takes years to go away because if something goes wrong, you can have a lot of problems. Know your anatomy, as I mentioned. Educate your patients, warn them. We ask all of our patients when they come in the office the day of their treatment, did you take any aspirin? And it can be one dose of ibuprofen one day, nine days ago, and they can still have a lot of bruising. So we really try to educate our patients so that when they come in, we are as set up for, for success as possible. And then we do, as I said, give prevention tips, taking things like bromelain or eating a lot of pineapple prior to procedure, doing things like arnica, um, anything that we can do to have our patients get the best results possible. And then when we go to do the injections, I always ice before. It does reduce the pain, it does reduce the bruising, and patients really do like it. And they'll usually say, where's that little ice machine? I wanna make sure I get that, because they remember it. Um, before a patient leaves, if you feel a lump or a bump, make sure that you massage. You do not want that patient walking out with lumps on their face or you're going to have problems. Making sure you're injecting the right product in the right area. And then 
The, a recent article came out that showed the speed of injection is related to adverse events. So when I inject, I inject very slowly. And I mean, extremely slowly. It used to be when I started out, I did it a lot faster, and now it takes a lot longer. There are certain individuals that I know that do fillers, and it can take them and literally 30 minutes to do the lower lids with one syringe. So again, slower is better. Small amounts and withdrawing prior injection, if you inject all the way up to the point where the needle is, you'll have a little lump on the surface, and that will be noticeable because that's not where the filler goes. Cannulas, has anyone here worked with cannulas before? Anyone? Okay, one. Um, cannulas are nice. People, I think, have a little bit of a misperception that they avoid any kind of risk when you're dealing with arteries and veins and things like that. That is not true. You can still cannulate an artery with a cannula. It's harder, but it still can happen. So it's important to understand cannulas are nice in certain areas, especially around the nose, uh, but you still, you still run the risk of cannulating an artery. So um, it does reduce your bruising to some degree, but know that there are still risks involved. Again, now, we're just talking about the immediate erythema, swelling, edema. We warn our patients. We tell them to use ice. We send them home with ice. We have them sleep elevated that night with a few extra pillows. Uh, ecchymoses, not uncommon, again, especially if a patient does take aspirin or Advil. Um, then you can get, again, that immediate under or overcorrection. If you place it in the wrong place, that Tyndall effect with hyaluronic acid will have that blue tinge look. And then, of course, that vascular compromise. The biggest sign for that is pain. If you are injecting a patient and they are experiencing pain, that is not a good sign. Um, with immediate onset or intermediate onset, sorry, three to 14 days, that's when you get the angioedema, which is uncommon, and the nodules, inflammatory or non-inflammatory. And finally, with the delayed, that can be that persistent erythema, nodules, infection, granulomas, acneiform eruptions, delayed hypersensitivity, and then till injectasias. Um, Infectious HSV, we always ask our patients uh, at the consult and then the day of their treatment, do you have any history of herpes infection? If we're doing anything around the mouth and frequently anything on the face, we do pre-treat if they've had a history of it. If they haven't had a history of it, but they may carry the virus, and then you do an injection and they call the next day with a lesion on their face, see them in the office. If it looks like herpes, go ahead and treat them uh, and let them know that they should pre-treat in the future. So most common complications, someone comes in with lumps and bumps. You can feel the product in their face. You can see the product on the surface. Most of them can be massaged out. Sometimes you can actually just stick a little needle in there, 26 gauge needle, and you can actually extrude that product out. And if you're concerned or the patient's concerned, always have hyaluronidase available so you can dissolve that material and the patient will be very happy. Overcorrection of material. This is a patient of mine who went to another doctor because they had a Groupon and you can see that that was not the place where you would want fillers, and certainly overcorrection of that filler. And so we injected with hyaluronidase, and the patient did great two weeks later. Again, have that available to you. These are two different protocols that were published. One's in plastic reconstructive surgery and uh, facial plastic surgery. And again, these are the units used here. Hyaluronidase, you can purchase it. It is not cheap, but you should absolutely not be doing any kind of hyaluronic acid filler if you do not have hyaluronidase available, okay? It really is important. Vascular occlusion, this is the thing that you don't want to see. When you're injecting a patient and you get that purple hue, that is not a good sign. And so if you see that purple color, if you see a blanching that is persisting, you want to dissolve that filler immediately. You have likely hit an artery. 
We have nitro paste in the office. I've had to use it twice and in 21 years. Um, but you want to have that available. Again, if you're doing fillers, you should have this available. You want to massage vigorously. And oftentimes, again, if you, if you do this, and you do the nitro paste, and you do the massaging, if there's only a small amount of product, and you put that hyaluronidase in there, the patients do really well. You're checking that skin before my patients ever leave the office. After any kind of injection, we look at the skin, look at the tone, look at the color, talk to the patient. Again, pain is usually the symptom that a patient will describe when you're injecting if you're in the wrong area. Vascular occlusion, when you get to impending necrosis. Again, these are the progressions of vascular occlusion and a not good signs. You can see in this patient, you've now got this purplish hue. Initially, you may think that this is just a bruise, but you have to watch it. And again, it's this pain that the patient describes, usually a dull pain, which you should not have with the filler treatments. And immediately, we do, on a pending necrosis, we do a warm compress, back to that nitro paste or nitroglycerin paste, we do hyaluronic acid and um, the hyaluronidase, I'm sorry, into that area. We flush it with that. And again, if you're looking at necrosis, that's where you need to have someone on call. You need to know someone where you can possibly get the patient in for hyperbaric oxygen. If the skin breaks down, that's where you're looking at debriding the area. This is a serious complication. And so if you are going in, again, this is, can be done just from the um, labial artery. If you're doing those lips, you need to know where that artery is, you need to know your risks, and know what to look for if something should go wrong. This is blockage. This is a patient that um, Dr. Nestor saw, but I saw a patient like this that was sent to me by an ENT doctor, and they had injected the nasolabial fold, but they went deep at that corner, in the nasal jugal fold, and they hit the artery. And so this is necrotic tissue, and the danger, of course, is that once it gets that bad, um, they're usually going to have some kind of scarring. So again, important to, if you're doing this, if you're worried, if the patient is complaining of pain, that you stop injecting, you go ahead and, again, massage, warm compresses, nitro paste, flushing it with hyaluronidase, um, hyperbaric oxygen if you have the access to it or know someone or know the hospital that has it, and then debridement and antibiotics if necessary. And then the worst case scenario, and this should be in your consent, especially if you're doing anything around the eyes, is that if you get in that glabellar complex, and I do treat this area because a lot of my patients will come in and they have deep glabellar lines and the neuromodulators are not enough, so we wanna put some filler in there. You do run the risk, there are arteries up there and you can have serious complications, so you again need to know your anatomy. You want to flush it with hyaluronidase, large amounts. You need to lower that ocular pressure, ocular massage, glaucoma medications or beta blockers, the diamox, anterior chamber prosthesis. You need to know what you're doing in these areas. You also need to have a really good friend who's an ophthalmologist. <laughs> so my friend is an oculoplastic surgeon. I did actually a fellowship in oculoplastics with him for uh, back in 99. So, but again, if you're gonna get in this area, you need to know what you're doing. Aspirin, of course, vasodilatation, you have the patient breathe into a paper bag, so you're increasing their CO2, and, uh, and call the ophthalmologist and see what else you can do. But these are the areas, these are the main four arteries that you have to really worry about, and those are the areas, again, that glabellar complex, around the lips, around the uh, nose, and then right at that bridge of that nose as well, 
um, are danger zones. And so know them, either stay away from them, or if you're going to treat those areas, know how to handle a complication. Delayed adverse events, these include things like nodules and granulomas, as well as induration, uh, whether or not these are foreign body reactions or hypersensitivity or biofilms, these are all the questions. We believe the hypersensitivity that can occur with these fillers is usually a delayed hypersensitivity. That's why it can happen up to two weeks later. Um, T-cell mediated, and you can under pathology see a granuloma, or again, a reaction like a biofilm, and that can be infectious, and that's where you have to, again, know what you're doing, see the patient back, make sure that you have the dermatologist on call if there's a problem, and, uh, and know what you're doing in these situations and how to treat them. Here's patients that come in. Um, you can see inflammatory nodules, small, big, under the surface, and these are some of the kind of cases that get sent to me, and then the question is, how do you handle them? So again, knowing what can go wrong, knowing how to treat these patients early on. Here's a patient just with induration, and knowing again, and this is a nice little, I'll show you a little breakdown on how to, how to decide what you're gonna do. But real quick, on the biofilm, it's something that we are now aware of. Again, this can be done with long, or caused by long-lasting or permanent fillers. The volumizing fillers are a big one, um, uh, things like Voluma. And injecting in mass volume. So again, it's that really slow injection, small aliquots, but when you do inject mass amounts of, of products, sometimes this can happen. The uh, filler can be encapsulated. They are susceptible to this bacteria as well as trauma. Always prep the skin. I'm assuming, does everyone prep their skin before they inject with fillers? Please raise your hand. Good, okay, if you do not, make sure that hand goes up because you always wanna prep the skin. And uh, when you're doing, some people will go inside the mouth, intraoral injections, and you do increase the risk of these kind of infections. And then bacteremia, of course, is the, the biggest thing that you're worried about in these, in these patients. So preventing is with proper patient technique, um, avoiding these patients with skin infections. So if a patient says that they've recently been to the dentist or they recently had an infection, we won't do fillers. We'll have them wait, let them finish their antibiotics. They'll come back after they're all cleared and all off their antibiotics before we do any kind of injection. Um, be careful, again, permanent fillers are permanent. So I rarely use permanent fillers. How about you, Dr. Gilbert? How often do you use permanent fillers? He's saying never. But there are people that do use permanent fillers. Remember, they're permanent. And so if a patient doesn't like it, you're stuck. You better be, you know, be sure that you know what your patient wants. Um, prepping that skin well, alcohol, chlorhexidine, betadine, making sure that that skin is absolutely clear. My nurses do it before I treat the patient, and then I do it before I treat the patient. So it's a double whammy. Uh, prophylactic antibiotics. So remember that if a patient has a history of bacterial endocarditis or they have anything else going on, you need to know if they need to be prophylaxed with antibiotics. And then again, if those patients have gone in for teeth cleaning or anything else, then we, if it's just cleaning, we may go ahead and prophylax them as well. This is a nice evaluation too, and I don't mind you taking a picture of it if you would like. But uh, so if someone comes in with a nodule, which probably if you've done fillers, you'll have at least one patient that will come in with a nodule. You want to determine if they're inflammatory or non-inflammatory. If they're non-inflammatory, you can massage, you can do your hyaluronidase. If, um, if you want to not use the hyaluronidase, you can do a larger bore needle uh, and try to actually extrude out the material. If they're inflammatory, you want to determine if they're fluctuant or not fluctuant. If they're fluctuant, you incise and drain it and put them on antibiotics. If they're non-fluctuant, you can do empiric antibiotics for about 48 hours. If no improvement, that's where you'll do a biopsy, send it for culture, um, and keep them on stuff for about 10 to 21 days. And then, again, a long course of antibiotics uh, and considering, again, 
injecting some hyaluronidase, it won't hurt, and then perhaps removing that product altogether, and intralesional corticosteroids. So in summary, this is going to end the first part of my talk, understanding the filler properties and what product is best for each site is very important. Recreating a facial balance and symmetry is critical. Mid-face replacement is really going to give that youthful appearance back. I will mention one thing, though. I think it's interesting that um, it's become a big highlight where people will try to put a little filler in that apple of the cheek. But sometimes, in my opinion, it's overdone, and not everyone should have a really prominent cheekbone. And so I think that it can actually look overdone if you do too much of that. Uh, recreating the jawline, that's a huge part. Giving them back that jawline, especially in men, um, they love it. It's, you can create a masculine jawline, you can create a feminine jawline. The technique dependent, again, on the anatomy and the product you're picking. Hyaluronic acids do stimulate collagen, so know that for volume loss, and then understand the complications and how to avoid them. So now we have the ARS, and question, which of the following is the most dangerous complication of fillers? And your choices are lumps and bumps, overcorrection, vascular occlusion, necrosis, or delayed adverse events, including nodules, granulomas, or enduration. And I think my timer starts now. Okay, I'll make you watch me dance. So, let's see. The most important answer is, and the majority of you did not get it. Okay, so vascular occlusion is the Necrosis is the step before complete vascular occlusion. So that is, again, remember, if you hit a vessel, the thing that you're most worried about is occlusion of that vessel with your product, and necrosis is caused by that vascular occlusion. Okay, next question. Which of the following are the best ways to prevent complications? Unrealistic, avoid unrealistic expectations, use dissolvable filler, know your anatomy, educate patients with stopping the NSAIDs or aspirin, or all of the above. And time to start. Hopefully everyone got this. Yes! Okay. <laughs> Almost everyone. Um, so this is really important. Again, if you're going to do fillers, make sure you know what you're doing and how to have a happy patient and how to actually sleep at night and not be worried about your patient all night. So we're going to go to the second part of my talk, which is the botulinum toxin. And again, I use in my office the term neuromodulator with my patients. They like it much better than the word toxin, because toxin doesn't sound so good. <laughs> um, what we want to do when we're dealing with botulinum toxin, first of all, how many of you use botulinum toxin currently? Okay, a lot of you. So it's a great product. It can be done on many aged uh, individuals, and again, we want to understand what to use, how much to use, things like that. So you need to understand the dynamics of the botulinum toxin A, and there are different varieties, and that relates to the how much to use, how you inject it, and again, your patient expectations. So you really need to have a discussion because every patient is different. So I inject my patients differently. Understand again the objectives. So there are differences in in the, in the different kinds of botulinum toxin. There is, um, you can have pain with certain ones, some hurt more than others, um, some have a sooner onset, some have a longer duration. So again, understanding the differences between the products, also understanding the differences in reconstitution. That has been a big 
a big issue for people of how much do you inject, how much do you dilute with, things like that. And then also how things change over time. At one month, I did a, a study on the com a comparative study between Dysport and Botox, and at one month, both of them start dissolving. Both of them start disappearing. Both of them start losing their efficacy. And so if a patient comes in at two months and says, my, my Botox is worn off, or my Dysport is worn off, or my Xeomin is worn off, the idea is that after one month, they will start to have movement again. So you need to understand that that is the time frame as well. So this is a great slide. You can take a picture of it. It's actually published um, in science. And these are the muscles of the face. So when you are doing botulinum toxin, you need to understand the muscles of the face and what you are injecting. And you need to know that the frontalis muscle, which is that very large muscle up here, it's an elevator muscle. So if you inject it with a toxin and you stop that movement, to stop the elevation, you're going to have a low brow. You're going to bring those brows down. So you need to understand that concept off the bat because if someone comes in and says, I don't like my forehead lines, and you say, oh, I can treat that, and you stick botulinum toxin up there, and they come back in, and their brows are down here, and they look at you and they're like, I didn't want this. You need to know, again, what you're doing, where you're placing it, and uh, what the side effects are with that when you place it. So this is, again, a really good slide. In general, botulinum toxin has a mechanism of action, and these we're talking about now the, um, the botulinum toxin A. They all work at that SNAP25 protein, and they cleave that membrane. And so the idea is that the acetylcholine that's trying to get to the nerve is not getting there. And so you're not getting the release, so you're not going to have the muscle work. That's the basic basis of it. So you're, it's binding that presynaptic terminal of the neuromuscular junction, and stops it. But over time, you'll regenerate that protein, and you'll regenerate that connection, and you will have movement again. It's all the same. Um, the difference really is just what target protein. So like um, uh, myoblock targets the, this one over here, the uh, syntoxin right here, syntaxin, let me say it right. Um, oops, that's not me. <laughs> I don't want this one. Guys? going to something else. Can we close? Thank you. Okay. All right. So what's available on the market today? So these are the three types of botulinum toxin A. You've got your onobotulinum toxin, your ABO, and your INCO. Okay. Those are the three that are available today. Type B, uh, the REMA, which is the myoblock, is rarely used for people that are not responding to type A. You can use type B. I will tell you that I have like three patients in my practice that use it. Uh, because they do not respond to type A, and it only lasts a couple months. So it's a very short duration, and it's very expensive. So these are the three that we'll basically be talking about. These are all neurotoxin proteins, about 150 kilodaltons, and they, some of them contain the hemagglutin and non-toxic hemagglutin, uh, non-hemagglutin proteins, and they have complexes that protect these neurotoxins from degradation by the acidic conditions. So ONO, and again, these are the three ones that are FDA-approved, are different complex sizes. So you've got the ONO, the ABO, and the ZEO. And I'll show you a little table here. This is a nice table, and you can take a picture of this one if you'd like. Um, when you get a bottle of the ABO botulinum toxin, you will see that it's 300 units on it. The ONO and the ZEO are 100 units each, okay? But then you can see they break down slightly different. 
Um, they have, you know, this one has a cluster named botulinum toxin, um, but it has the hemagglutin complex in it, as does the ano, but it's not found in the zeomin. And, uh, and then different, again, different kinds of composition. This one has the lactose, this one has sodium chloride, this one has sucrose. So they're slightly different, um, working very similar. The nice thing with the zeomin, it is stored in a cabinet. It does not come in a fridge or freezer. So if you have your freezer go out, you do not have a problem losing your product. So you definitely want to back up if you, have, if you have any of the other products. And they can be put, again, into 2 to 8 degrees. Typically, when you open a vial, you want to use it within four hours. Um, studies are showing that it probably lasts longer than that, though. So unit of measurement. And this is a big question I get where people say, well, you know, what does this mean? So why it's 100 units in the, botch, the Botox, and there's 300 units in the Dysport. Does that mean there's three times as much in one as the other? No, that is not how it works. So what they do is the unit of measurement is proprietary to each product. And they measure it based on that lethal dose, the, the LD50 of a mouse test. But each product is slightly different. And I think the easiest way to think of it, and, and it does vary slightly, but the easiest way to think of it is that I mix my toxins so that when I go to use it, I use the same amount. And what does that mean? So I mix my Botox with 2.5 cc's of saline of unpreserved saline. And I mix my Dysport with three cc's of unpreserved saline. So when I draw up 0.5 or 0.6 cc's of either one of those products, I've got about the same, in my mind, of each product. Now, the units are different, but that gives me about a 2.5 correlation, 1 to 2.5. That's about the, the breakdown. Some people like it different, so it, it really just depends on the person. So again, for every unit of Botox, I'm getting 2.5 units of Dysport. That works for me. And I'll adjust based on the patient, based on how much musculature they have, whether it's a male, a female, what areas I'm doing, but that's the basis. And I think if you go that route, you will not get in trouble. If you make it too complicated, that's when you can get in trouble and put too much of, of a product in there. So here again, these are the studies um, that they've had some published data, not a lot, but there are some published data to offer some guideline. The theory behind it is that when you do the um, ANO, which is Botox, and the Xeomin, they're both 100 units, that it's theoretically one-to-one. -one. I, I do not find that that works that way, but it's approximate. And then with the ABO to the ONO, again, I do 2.5 to 1, and the easiest way for me is to mix it so that when I drop my, my amount, it's the same amount each time in the areas. And these, again, show clinical trials. But Dr. Lowe did one of these. Um, these are all the published data. You have to kind of figure out what works for you and what amount of, of a Dysport or Botox or Xeomin that you want to use on a patient and um, stick with that. Now, there's been a question of spread of toxin or diffusion of toxin. And it's important to understand that these are not one in the same terms. The idea with spread is that it is fast and it is active. And so what happens is when you inject a patient and you inject a bunch of little spots in the patient, you are going to have spread because you're injecting, you're injecting volume in a lot of different areas. Diffusion is slow and passive. And what that means is that once you've injected it, you'll have a small amount of diffusion that occurs to treat a surrounding tissue. And that's how you can, you can usually test patients with um, any kind of uh, hydrosis, you can see how their sweat pattern appears. That's how we know how far the product diffuses. But they are different. And so the idea is that if you inject very quickly, you will have more spread. 
So I do small amounts. I don't do large amounts of toxin injections, and I go slowly. So again, here is spread. It's the volume that you're injecting. It's the injection site, the depth, the speed, and the needle gauge that you're using. It is not linked to the dose. It's linked, really, again, to that number of injections. And with that correct injection technique, it should stay where you place it. And what that means, again, this is just that's a quick one. This is the diffusion. And diffusion, again, is slow and passive. Like we know from my daughter's ninth grade uh, chemistry, the molecules move from a higher concentration to a lower concentration and create that equilibrium. So they're going to go slowly. And that will happen when you inject any kind of toxin. To show you, this was a study we had done where we injected a patient with five sites and to see you know, the results. And then we injected a patient with two sites. And what you can see in these situations is that by doing the increased number, you're actually getting an overall efficacy. So the more injection sites, you get a better result. With that being said, I'm going to go backwards for a second. Can I go backwards on here? OK. If you do that to a patient, what's going to happen? Anyone? Anyone? Dr. Gilbert, what's going to happen if you do that to a patient? If you do all five injections? <laughs> so you're just going to flatten that brow. You're going to have that patient have a completely flat brow. The whole forehead is, is paralyzed, and that's what will happen. So this would not be a technique that I would use in pretty much anyone. I might do it in a male, maybe. Um, but even then, I don't like to have that frozen look. Uh, but again, more injections do work better, but understand that you really have to be patient-dependent and area-dependent. So, oops, sorry, going forward. Oh. Okay. So with that, again, more injections will give you a, uh, an increased efficacy. The diffusion is over time, and it is volume-sensitive. Um, so you will get some element of diffusion. And the idea, the, what you want is you want to stop that, those synapses. You want to basically get the SNAP protein receptors full of the toxins so that you, you don't have response. However, I think now, as opposed to 20 years ago, we used to think that you just freeze everything. And now I think that most people, at least the majority of my patients in, in Manhattan Beach, don't come in and say, I want to be paralyzed. I mean, they, they want to still express. We do a lot of actors and actresses that say, I can't be frozen. And so that's a much more popular way to go. So we don't attempt to completely freeze. What we do is we soften lines. We make things look natural and not frozen. I think that's more important. Uh, again, choosing the product, certain ones tend to hurt a little bit more than others. I think the least painful of all of those is the Zeoman. And, um, and then microinjection, again, the number of injections can be helpful. So now the important part of this is, lots of you do neuromodulators. The important part is, what if something goes wrong? And some of the stuff is easy to fix, and some of the stuff is not so easy. So how do you avoid it? Similar to the fillers, numero uno is getting a patient that is not unrealistic in their expectations. And so you really want to go over with each patient what they are expecting, what they want, and can you provide them with what they're looking for. Uh, this look here would not be a good look. And someone did it to someone. And so I think the idea is that that's not what we're going for. You can always touch up. So I do what I think a patient needs. I always tell my patients they can come back at two weeks, and I'm happy to do a touch up at no charge. That's how I do it in my practice, if they need it. 
I don't paralyze anymore. Um, I just try to relax the muscles. Sometimes people will be adamant that I, want, I don't want it to move. So then you have to make a choice. Are you going to give them what they want or not? Um, I do warn the patients that it is weird. The first time if I do someone's lips, I always warn them that it will feel strange at first. And if you are someone that blows, likes to whistle, you will not be able to whistle. And sipping through a straw can be difficult. So if you pre-warn them that these things can happen and these side effects are common, oftentimes they look so good, they understand and they're prepared, they're very happy. But if you don't tell them and they go to drink through a straw and something comes out the side, they are not gonna be happy with you. I always cool prior to injections. I find that makes a huge difference. Again, know your anatomy and know the muscles that you're treating. And then becomes the important part here. These are danger zones. And these are the areas where you can get into very unhappy patients. One centimeter mid-pupil line on the forehead. If you go one, I typically try to go at least 1.5 because if you go there, you can get into the ocular um, muscle and you can get a droop or a ptosis. If you go medial to the orbital rim, you can get in trouble. The zygoma, if you go too far uh, inferior and lateral, um, you can also get into trouble with a mouth droop. Um, oral commissure, if you are not sure what you're doing, you can have problems. And then the neck, of course, again, side effects can occur. So perceived complications. These are things that happen. They're not really complications. They're just things that happen as you do injections. So I tell my patients that we can fix it. If it is something with asymmetry, you can fix it. Bruising, ecchymoses, swelling, pain, needle marks, of course, um, erythema, and then, of course, the unrealistic expectation is uh, something you have to look at. But true complications, whether it's a lid or brow ptosis, cheek paralysis, increase uh, or loss of mandibular dental showing on smiling, the oral motor insufficiency where they can't, uh, they can't drink through a straw, inability to raise the lip or an irregular movement of the lip, unintended into the depressor labial inferioris, um, decreased support of the lower face, difficulty swallowing neck weakness, and dry mouth. These are all the things that need to be in your consent if you're doing botulinum toxin. If you want to take a picture of the slide, you can, but these are the things that you need to go over with your patients and make sure that they understand what can go wrong and if you're treating a certain area. So I do a lot of necks and we get great results, but I always warn my patients so that when they go to the gym, if they were someone that was doing 300 sit-ups and all of a sudden they're like, oh, my neck is sore from my 279th sit-up, that certainly could be related to the toxin placement, but usually they're so happy that those neck bands are gone that they don't care. Uh, so, okay, so let's talk about those side effects. So here's a patient that was sent to me and she has, as you can see, that quizzical look. Some people call it the Jack Nicholson look and it's only on one side. So a small amount, a very small amount of toxin right at that, um, at that line, you can actually place tiny little dot, it's a bigger dot than you would actually place, but a little dot right there, you're softening that line and you'll bring that brow down. Now, some people will come in and say, I love that lift, can you do it over here? Well, it depends. If the whole forehead was treated and that is paralyzed, then no, you cannot. But if someone did not paralyze, you can usually put a little bit in the tail of the brow and lift up a couple millimeters in size, probably not that much. So you definitely wanna make sure that they, they are symmetrical when they leave and, um, and symmetrical at that two week mark. Uh, you can also, one of the things I do a lot of in the forehead is I put fillers in those forehead lines as opposed to just freezing the forehead because again, I can get a, a dropping of that brow. And 
This is a telltale sign that someone had Botox. I think one of the girls from Friends used to have it, where you could see the lines up here, but nothing else here. So don't leave those lines if you are going to treat the forehead. So heavy lids. That's what I was talking about. When you have a patient that comes in, if you treat the entire forehead, you will drop that brow. On a younger individual, you usually don't need to do that at all. You can create more of a V pattern. Again, look at the patient's anatomy, see where they need the injections, and discuss with them what their goal is. If they just want a softening and they just want a little lift, make sure you're not freezing that entire forehead. Um, men usually don't want an arch, but again, you need to talk to the patient because we do see men that do like that arch. Staying away from that mid-pupillary, uh, again, I usually go above 1.5 centimeters, not one. And then going for a more lateral lift, that's where you're looking for that temporal fusion line where the muscle ends and uh, injecting for a maximal pull to get a little bit of a lift. And you can see it's small amounts, small units that are placed in those areas. So this is just a study we did injecting patients uh, to see what kind of um, forehead freezing we would get. And you can see this is a patient with a low brow. And when you freeze her forehead, this was at, I think, about uh, 10 days out, you can see that her brow's even lower. And she needs a little bit more right here, but her brow's even lower. And so I think what the takeaway is is that in regular practice, I wouldn't want this patient's brows to be lower. So I would discuss with her what other options I have. Perhaps I would try to lift her brow a little here, maybe treat a little bit more centrally only. Here's another patient. When patients come in like this, and again, this is a steady patient. This is not, we would not just choose this patient for this. This would be a patient that I would not treat their forehead. When you get an older patient like this that has these really heavy brows, if I just treat that forehead, those brows are coming down. And that laxity of the skin, you can see that, it's, it's not a good look. This is a patient who needs what? They need their gobelar complex treated. And sometimes I will just treat the gobelar complex and see them back and then see what everything looks like. And when this opens up and the brows, the frontalis muscle, which is an elevator, takes over, it lifts everything up. That may be all I need to do. Here is a ptosis from Corey Moss. You can see that that is an unhappy patient. <laughs> um, when I inject the gobelar complex, I'm very cautious. I use my thumb to place it. I trained with Dr. Nicholas Lowe, who told me that less injections were better. So in that area, I do less, and I actually just angle my needle um, differently while I'm in there. So I, again, stay above that one centimeter pupil mid-pupillary brow. I inject superior and central when I'm injecting. Um, I keep my concentration down so I have less diffusion in that area. If you do get a ptosis, you can tell these patients NAFCON A or Vasacon drops, which are over the counter, they will temporarily, temporarily relieve that problem and uh, your patients will be quite happy. It doesn't permanently help it, but over time uh, the, it will relax. Usually takes up to four weeks for that ptosis to go away. Again, holding your hands of your patients, warning them, so it's much better to not have the ptosis if you can possibly avoid it. Here's a patient of mine who comes in, and just to show you what I would do on a patient like this, you can see she's got a little bit of that um, heavy brow here and heavy lid, so I put a little bit over in that tail of the brow at that, at that temporal fusion line, and a little bit kind of higher up, and I can actually open up that eye, lift that eye, and I actually, she also had her, her, the uh, crow's feet done as well. Zygomaticus minor droop. So what can happen when you're not treating the mouth and when you're treating the cheek area or the eye area is that if you place it too low onto that malar pad, you can actually hit the muscle that treats the lip and you can bring that lip down. So when they're smiling, they are asymmetrical. So it's important to really stay um, outside that orbital rim, stay more superior lateral when you're injecting. 
always ask any previous history of transconjunctival blepharoplasty because that is where you can get in trouble as well. And then again, a high placement, and I'll show you what I mean by that. You can see it's small amount, amounts of it. So here's a patient who we're treating the crow's feet, but she has these lines. This is typically where you get in trouble when you chase those lines down and those patients end up losing that muscle function down to the mouth. So what we do is we typically do a little triangle right out here, but very, very small amounts of, of dosage to improve that overall look. Going for silver with the lips. So when you do lip lines, you have to do a small amount. You have to warn the patients. Um, if you do too much, if you don't get all of the muscle involved or too much on one side, you can get that pull down. This can also occur when you're treating the DOA um, down here, and this can be asymmetrical. And these are very unhappy patients, similar to the patients with ptosis, because they feel like everyone's noticing how they smile, so they walk around like this. So ways to avoid it, number one, we place very small doses. When I'm doing the lips, I typically put half of what I think a patient will need, and I have the patient come back two weeks later for the other half, so that I never over-treat the lips. If they come back and they say it feels funny, I don't even put the second dose in. If they say they love it and it doesn't feel funny, I usually put the second dose in so that they have the best results possible. I ice and pinch when I'm doing it, again, icing with everything. I add typically more at the two-week mark, and then really always avoiding that lateral third of the lips. That's where you get into trouble when you're injecting the lateral third uh, with a toxin. And again, warning the patients of the side effects when you treat that area. So here's a patient, and you can see we inject right in this area. That's where we would do it. Sometimes I'll do two injections. It depends on how big the lips are. In a patient that doesn't have any lip lines on the bottom lip, I usually will only do the upper. But for my elderly patients that have upper and lower lip lines, I will treat the entire mouth. Neck bands. Great results. Grab the band. Have them bite down. Some people can't do it, but have them bite down. You can grab the neck band in your hand, and we put usually between 20 to 40 units of Botox or 50 to 100 units of the Dysport, about 1.5 centimeters down the band, and the patients do great. If you have horizontal bands, I actually prefer fillers in those areas, but you can try the toxin in small amounts, and then you can get that nice Nefertiti lift in the area when you're treating, again, that mandible, the insertion of the platysmal band, and the angular depressile muscle as well. And just to show you, you can see those bands, and then here's that patient after treatment with no bands present, and it does give a really nice lifting and tightening of the neck for all ages. Advanced techniques, we do put injections into the master muscle. I won't go into that. Um, we're almost out of time anyways. Uh, we do the angular depressor muscle for the lateral commissure to lift the corners of the mouth, understanding again that this muscle here is a, um, will pull down the corners of the mouth and you want to elevate. Uh, we will sometimes mix toxins with fillers, and then we are now having studies show that you can actually use it for, for shrinking the sebaceous glands as well. So my summary, don't go for the home run. Don't overtox or overfill. Don't massage toxins, but do massage fillers. And I will tell you, in the last 15 years, the only complication I had with a toxin was someone that went and got a massage an hour after I did their toxin. So now, in my consent, it says no massages for one week. So I do add that. Um, discuss the expectations. Make it as painless as possible. Add more. I tell my patients to come back, so I have a happy patient. They'll tell their friends. Remember, com combination treatment does work best. So I frequently put in toxin first, have them come back, and then I'll add touch-up, and I'll do fillers at that time. If you're learning, practice on your friends and family, because they will not be mad at you when they get the free stuff. And always have the dissolvable fillers and hyaluronidase available and nitro paste if you're going into the filler 
realm. This was actually an article, um, if you want to read it, that I published uh, back in September of last year in the Plastic and Reconstructive Journal on treating and um, avoiding the adverse events of toxins and fillers. So we're going to do our PRS questions. Which of the following are danger zones for complications with neuromodulator injections? One centimeter above the, pupil the brow mid-pupillary line on the forehead, medial to the orbital rim, lateral one-third of the lip lines, angular depressor muscle of the face, or all of the above, and time starts now. Okay, let's see. Ooh, it went back. Okay, there we go. All right, so all of the above is correct. So if you did not get all of the above, make sure that you go over this talk again. The next question, perceived complications are normal side effects that are expected as part of the treatment process and are expected to resolve on their own. True or false? Okay, and the answer is true. Remember, these are the ones we're talking about, ecchymoses, erythema, things like that. True complications, rare adverse events that are not expected but are part of the informed consent and require treatment or hand-holding of a patient until resolution occurs with or without sequelae. True or false? answer is true. Okay, that's the stuff we were talking about with uh, the bad stuff that can happen. Finally, collagen injections, nope, but Bob is handy with a stapler and a pair of sausages. Thank you for your time. Now, I am over my time, but, but I am going to do the questions. I think they have a quick evaluation that they want you to do first, and then we will take some questions, and then we will get into Dr. Gilbert's talk. We will catch up on time. Do not worry. I will make sure. I'll bring out my hook. said I think 12 seconds a slide. Yeah, where's my music? Where am I dancing? And remember, if you have any questions, feel free to come grab us in between. I think we have a break after Dr. Gilbert's talk. Okay, and I think questions Okay, can you explain the correlation between pineapple and better things? So the theory is that pineapple contains bromelain, and bromelain is supposed to help with, um, with bruising. It's the bromelain in the pineapple, so we actually have bromelain supplements with Arnica that we offer our patients, or again, they can just eat a lot of pineapple. Um, and I'll go into more detail if you need that after. How do you handle questions about the albumin neurotoxins? I have patients concerned about the safety. You know, I. I've never had a patient really even worry about that. I don't think it's a problem. Um, I, tell me if you disagree, Dr. Gilbert. I, I don't ever see an issue with it. I don't say to my patients that if you have an, an egg, if you're allergic to eggs, that you can't have it. There's been no, no correlation whatsoever with that. So I tell my patients it's completely unrelated. It is not any, an issue at all. Um, uh, HIV patients commonly see us for fillers. How do you handle this risk of infection with procedures in the immunocompromised state? So number one, we do see patients that are HIV. Um, we always double glove 
and we are very cautious and we really try to explain to our patients that they can't move. The biggest danger is, of course, a patient getting an injection and moving on you with the needle in your hand. So if you're worried, you shouldn't do it. If you're comfortable with fillers, you need to just be very clear with the patient. We are putting a needle in your face. We are, I need you not to move. If you're really nervous, let's calm you down. Sometimes we'll give them something to take before they come in, like a Valium prescription, um, so that they stay calm while we're doing their injections, because we do not want them moving while we're doing that. Um, can you comment on antibiotics to neuro, antibodies to neurotoxin and its relation to frequent injections? Yes, I do tell my patients I don't like to inject them more than every three months. So even if they start having some movement back, which they will after one month, I warn everybody of that, I make them wait at least three months. The, the answer is I don't think we have a real answer to that, but I do not inject too frequently. I think that you can create these antibodies. I do have patients in my practice that when they come in or sneak out to someone else and get it done more frequently that they don't respond. So I give them a break. I tell them take six months off let everything resolve, they come back and they do fine. So I do make them wait a mandatory three months between injections before I will do another toxin session. Uh, do you feel topical arnica gel works? No. Any other questions real quick before we get started on the next talk? Yes. That helps a lot, yeah. So she was asking about the DAO if, when you're injecting in this area to improve the corners of the mouth. So yes, the more you can have a patient creating the muscle that you want to see, the better off you'll be. Typically, again, though, you're taking a line from the corner of the nose all the way down, going past the corner of the mouth, down to the jawline. And I typically will go just above that jawline when I'm injecting. Yes, sorry. Yeah, so he, Dr. Gilbert was just mentioning that they had an episode of blindness on an infraorbital injection. So when you're doing under that lower lid, that tear trough area, um, again, knowing your anatomy, and I don't know if it's true, but I would guess if someone had to ask me that that person had a previous blepharoplasty, transconjunctival blepharoplasty, if I had to guess, only because it changes things around. It might have been because it was a plastic surgeon who was doing the injection. Yeah, so he said, he said that it was a plastic surgeon that it had, had done the injection. So again, knowing your anatomy is key. So if anything, if you take nothing else away, my dad always says if you take one thing away from a lecture, it was useful. Please, please, please get a good anatomy book and know your anatomy. Any other quick questions? So the question was, how long do you wait for the staging of fillers? So the article that was published, um, Dr. Nairns did an article showing that they would see them back at four months. But I will tell you, in my practice, my patients don't usually want to wait four months. I think a one-month time frame is a good time. Tell me, Dr. Gilbert, if you disagree. But I typically wait one month. And I think all the swelling, any kind of edema that's related to it, the ecchymosis, all of that has resolved at that point. So I have my patients come back at one month. Then I will have them come back at four months to make sure everything's perfect. Okay. Any other quick questions? I see one back there. So I allow my patients to exercise. The question was, um, in my consent, I say no massages for a week. Uh, with exercising, I say it's fine. I just say that they need to stay upright. Um, I don't want them going face down when they're exercising on a bench. That's what I don't want with, uh, with either fillers or toxins. Any other quick questions, or you can come get me. There's one more. I'll take the last one, and then we'll go on to the next one. So, 
So the question was in those danger areas, do you aspirate before? I always aspirate. I always aspirate before I'm going in. Usually anywhere I go, I just want to make sure I didn't hit something. Um, the problem is it doesn't always happen. It doesn't always show you a flush of blood. Uh, so you still might be in a danger zone and, and not get there. And so that, that really is the, the area that you have to be careful of and, and understand the anatomy and know, again, placement. So like when I do the temporal area or the temples, I will go way deep down. I can see where the vessels are and I'll go way deep down and place that injection. Um, okay, any other questions? You can find me at break or see me sometime today, but we're gonna move on. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs. Recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.